You'd like to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the very last chapter, chapter 13. Uh, in a little while I'm going to be looking at verse 5. It may take me a few minutes to get there, so you can just uh, put a marker in it when you find it. That's where we'll be looking this morning. I'm beginning this morning a short series. When I say short, that's a relative term. It could be uh, five or six weeks or eight or ten, I don't know. Uh, it'll be a little while. And we're going to be asking and answering the question, uh, are you going to heaven? Now, right out of the gate, I'm sure uh, there are questions about why in the world I would pick a topic like that. Um, and let me hasten to say that it's a question that the Bible encourages us to ask. And let me also say that the, the real question is not, are you going to heaven? That's the kind of the way we phrase having life eternal. Um, we talk about what's going to happen when we die, as if it's a future event. The real question is, do you now, this day, have eternal life? And eternal life comes as a result of a new birth through being reconciled to God. The goal is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, to be born again, to come to life spiritually, to have eternal life. And going to heaven is really the byproduct of that. I don't mean to in any way uh, denigrate or downplay the glory of going to heaven. But only to point out that it is the natural place for people who have a, a living, abiding relationship with God to go when they die. Uh, Jesus said, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. You have eternal life right this moment. It began the day that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you come to the end of this physical journey in this physical world, for the believer, it's merely uh, opening the eyes and the vista of heaven and a new place to live uh, as we go on living in the presence of God. But most people ask the question, are you going to heaven when you die? Do you have assurance of that? And as I said, the Bible encourages us periodically to ask that question and to answer it. And what I'm hoping is, is that over time as we consider in these next few Sundays, this question together, one of two things will happen. I'm sure for most of you, what's going to happen is a wonderful sense of assurance that you do indeed have a relationship with God that is evidenced in your life by strong signs of new birth. That, that it's like, wow, you know, I can rest assured in confidence that I have an eternal relationship with God, that I am secure in Christ. There may be some that need to ask the question who will discover as they explore the answers, I'm not sure. 
And for you, my prayer and heart's desire is that this will be an opportunity for you to nail that down. For you to to make that transformation, to make that decision. As I said to the 8 o'clock group, uh, as your pastor of all the responsibilities that I may have, as the under-shepherd of this flock, the number one duty I have before God is to the best of my ability, the Holy Spirit enabling me to make sure that every one of you is safe in Jesus Christ and that you have eternal life. That, that's, that is the most important responsibility that I have before God. And I will have to give an answer to Him. I don't know how all that works, but the Scripture says those of us who are teachers and preachers will be uh, held to a, a standard of assessment, and I will have to give an answer for that question. So I want to be sure that from time to time we take a look. Um, One of the reasons is because of what has happened culturally with Christianity in our time and in in our nation. In the last 75 years, and I'm thinking somewhere around World War II and following, the evangelical church has kind of shot itself in the foot by cheapening and and altering the gospel to be something more along the lines of praying prayers and growing churches. And the consequence of that is that many people have responded to what has been called easy believism. Just kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling toward God Uh, and going to church and being part of the club. And there has been no real dramatic transformation of life. Once that kind of thing begins and sets into the church, in successive generations, true spirituality grows weaker and weaker. Until eventually the church is quite anemic. And we're in a place today where, and, and I'm not talking about the liberal church, the, the one that's been off the wire for, for a century. I'm talking about the evangelical church, the so-called Bible-believing church. The evangelical church in our country, the United States today, is so weak that it doesn't look any different from the world. In fact, If we're to believe George Barna's surveys and research, he says, according to his random surveys, that about 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. Upon further questioning, only about 10% of them have any kind of convictions that are even close to biblical standards. So, so the vast majority in America today say they're Christians, but only a relatively tiny percent hold values and beliefs that even mildly resemble biblical truth. In fact, even the Bible is in question. 
about half of Christians, again, if his statistics are accurate, about half of professing Christians do not believe the Bible is their source of authority and and speaks authoritatively. In other words, it's just another book, it's got mistakes in it, it's got problems, it's got passe and old-fashioned ideas, and we're in a new day, and we have better understanding, and we're smarter than those people. And And I can make up my own mind. And so we live in this kind of a time. And as a consequence, we need to ask the question, do I have eternal life? Am I going to heaven at the end of this lifetime? Do I know that for sure? And it's not a trivial question, because our eternal destiny hinges upon it. You know, the problem with with everybody having an opinion and and all the opinions being equally valid in our so-called pluralism of our culture today, what if you're wrong? What if there is an absolute? What if it is true and you're wrong? How much are you willing to gamble? You talk about being all in. When you breathe the last breath and your spirit leaves your body, if you're wrong, you're dead forever in hell, separated from God, if the Bible's true and you're wrong. And there's no coming back and there's no second chance. That's a pretty big gamble. I think we better investigate and come to some conclusions. The second thing I want to say in terms of general introduction is, it is not a presumptive question to ask, do I know for sure that I have eternal life? It is a question that the Bible encourages us to ask, and for which answers are available in the Scripture. There are those groups and people who don't believe you can give an answer to that question. I I mentioned some different views of theology and some nominal Christians and even uh, some other believers who for different reasons have a different opinion. If you're a strong Arminian, uh, you do not believe, if if I back you into a corner, uh, you do not believe that at the end of your life, at the moment of your death, you can say today, I know that I will go to heaven. The reason is because uh, Arminians ultimately believe that their uh, going to heaven is contingent upon abiding faithful in Jesus Christ all the days of their life. They don't believe they have to work for their salvation or do good works to, to be saved. They put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin. But the conviction is, if I ever stop doing that, I'm lost. So I have to be faithful to follow Christ all the days of my life. It's not up to Him to keep me, it's up to me to stick by Him. That's my responsibility. Now, I will hasten to tell you that in the Christian Missionary Alliance... 
we allow for that viewpoint. Methodists hold that. Uh, Wesleyans hold that. Uh, many Christian groups uh, believe that, that are sound Christian groups. And we recognize that people are saying that Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price for their sin and that salvation is through faith alone in him. And so when we examine people like that, for example, for ordination or licensing, um, we had determined as a denomination over 100 years ago, we would not make a distinction between Calvinists and Arminians and, and all those kinds of questions. We weren't going to fight that battle. There's a world that needs to be one to Christ, and we're not going to get lost in the quagmire of all of that kind of uh, mumbo-jumbo. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's just that there are things that are more important. But you should be aware of that. Another group of Christians who don't think that you can say for sure that you have eternal life are people who somehow feel that it's arrogant or prideful. I, I grew up a Southern Baptist. I grew up in a Baptist home, and uh, my mother was a Baptist. But if you pinned her to the wall, she would tell you in a heartbeat, I hope I'm going to heaven. And I would say, Mom, <laughs> have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? I mean, do you know that you've made that decision and, and that you've made a commitment to Christ? Well, yeah. Well, then, do you know that you're going to heaven? Well, I hope so. And I would say, well, why don't you, why can't you just say you know? And her answer was always, I would never do that. That is so arrogant. And I thought, wow, that's so sad. Because the scripture is very clear that you can know that you have eternal life. In fact, John wrote an entire letter. His first John epistle was written to answer that very question. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, the Bible is abundantly clear that we can right now today know for sure that we have eternal life. I also mentioned that Roman Catholics do not believe it is possible before the time of judgment to know if they're going to make the cut for heaven. And I, and I bring that up because we live in, a, in an area where Roman Catholicism is so prevalent. And I meet people all the time who are sincere and devout and, and, and take their faith seriously and who are living without a, a, a clue whether or not they will make the grade in the end. Because their belief is that while Jesus Christ died to take care of the problem of original sin, they have responsibility to fill up their cup of righteousness by doing good works. And if they don't do enough, if they don't meet the grade, in the end, after living their whole lives, they could still lose the game. And that, that to me, is, is sad, because there are very many sincere people who have no real hope of having a place in heaven in the presence of God. And, uh, and they, need the, they need the word to encourage them. Well, the answer to the question in the scriptures are given in the form of statements or tests that we can apply 
And, and as I've examined the New Testament, I find that Jesus gives us test. He makes statements that we can evaluate. Paul gives us test. Peter, James, and John all give us ways that we can examine our hearts with the aid of the Holy Spirit and come to a confident conclusion. Yes or no. I have eternal life or I need to come back to faith in Jesus Christ and and face Him again and make a decision that is based on genuine repentance and the experience of a new birth. All all of uh, these ones I've named, Jesus and the four apostles in the New Testament, give us tests that we can apply to ourselves. But you need to know ahead of time that God doesn't grade on the curve and uh, 90% is not a passing grade. Every one of these tests are standalone tests and every one of them requires 100%. In other words, when we examine ourselves, given any of the statements or tests that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, when we do that self-examination with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to make sure that we have passed the test, that we have made 100. Because if we don't make 100, then we have failed the test. And we need to uh, reevaluate our whole position in Jesus Christ. It is interesting that none of the biblical tests given by Jesus and the apostles include any of the following Praying the sinner's prayer and trusting Jesus Christ verbally. I want to clarify that, but how many times have you heard the story? How many times have you seen it with your own eyes? How many times have you done it? How many times did you pray the sinner's prayer? You know what I'm saying? Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I I know I'm guilty, please forgive me, take away my sin, I invite you into my life, give me life eternal, I want to go to heaven when I die, thank you Jesus, amen. How many have prayed that prayer ten times, a hundred times, every day, before you had assurance that it took? There are a lot of people who pray that prayer and never have a transformation. In fact, most often the reason people do that is out of fear. Many times they're afraid of going to hell. That's not a bad motivation for coming to Christ, but in and of itself it's not adequate. Because frankly, fear really doesn't do the trick. It takes more than that. And people go through the the motions. Going through the motions does not make you a born-again child of God. Being baptized and giving testimony of being a Christian. You can go into this baptistry up here and walk down and get wet and go under the water and come up and, and, and walk out and nothing happens spiritually. There's nothing sacred about the water. It's 
It's one of the things that people get a lot, a lot, they get confused about. They think the bread and, and the wine at communion, they think the water in the baptistry has power. It doesn't have any power. It's grape juice from Jewel. I, nothing I say makes it change. The bread is bread. It's matzah crackers. And the water, well, it's usually dirty. And it's not holy. It's just wet. It comes out of the ground, and it looks ugly a lot of the time, unless the new well has made a difference there. So far, it looks worse, so I don't know what it's going to look like when we baptize. But none of that makes, that, that doesn't change anything. If something hasn't happened inside, nothing happens in the tank. And you can say anything you want to say without anything being different inside. Remember the the people that brought the, the paralytic to Jesus, let him down through the roof, right in the middle, and uh, Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that wasn't the motivation of his friends. They wanted him healed. But Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And all the people in the room went, who is this man that he's forgiving sins? What kind of authority does he think he has? This is not possible. And Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, I can tell you the answer to that. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. The reason is you can't see that. How do you know? I, I can say all day, I can stand in the back and say, my, my sister, your sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. I can stand back there and throw holy water at you and pat you. And there is no evidence that anything has happened. None whatsoever. You can say whatever you want. But when Jesus said, okay, so that you can know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin, I say, take up your bed and walk. Oh boy, that's where the rubber meets the road. He's either going to get up or he's going to lie there. And he got up and he walked. There's the proof that this man has authority. Your testimony is only words if it is not backed by the transformation of a life. Becoming a member of a local congregation doesn't get you saved. You can join any other club, and it does about the same thing. Regularly attending church and worship services, being involved in Bible studies and prayer groups, giving money for charity or missions or doing good works, all of these things are good, but if you're doing them for salvation, they're not effective. Because there's another problem that has to be addressed. So as we look at this over the next few weeks, one of the things that we want to ask ourselves is, do I meet the real criteria for someone who has eternal life? Is there evidence inside of me? And this morning we're going to look for a few moments <coughs> at 2 Corinthians 13.5 as a way of examining that because Paul uh, writes this to them. And it's kind of interesting what he says. Follow along with me, if you will, from verse 1 through 6. First, uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, 
and do all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. (laughs) Do, Do you get the point that Paul has kind of reached the end of his rope with the Corinthians? If I come again, if you make me come down there one more time, You're not going to get away with it this time. (laughs) He says, I am not going to spare anybody. And then he says, Since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. They've been making fun of Paul. (laughs) Goofy old guy. Yeah, he helped start the church, but what a fool. We have Christ in power, and he's just a weakling. And uh, he was trying to love them and correct them and help them, and they were just blowing him off. And he said, look, I've tried to be nice. When I'm with you, I'm gentle. I write strong letters, but when I'm with you, I'm gentle. I understand that. I'm kind of that way. I'm always gentle when I'm talking to people, and I take out the pen and start writing, and oh boy. So I, I understand Paul's heart here, but... He said, this time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with you. And as he moves along, he says, For indeed Christ was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. You know, there are in several of Paul's letters, as he writes to the churches, in several of his letters, he raises the question about the sincerity of, of the followers in that particular location. He he wants them to check out the reality of how they're acting to see if they've really been born again. Because what Paul is kind of saying is your behavior does not resemble someone who's in Christ. I'm hard-pressed to say that you've been changed. You're not acting like it. And maybe you have not really been born again. Maybe you've believed the wrong gospel. That's what he told the Galatians. The Galatians, you may have believed a false gospel. You, you, you got it all wrong. But I think of all of the churches, Corinth was the worst. Most of them just had one problem. Corinth had a bunch of problems. I mean, they were a mess. They got drunk at communion. And if somebody didn't have enough food, they just let them starve. They didn't care. And uh, immorality was rampant in the church and some blatant stuff that even the Gentiles didn't do. You know, the outsiders didn't, didn't do. And uh, they had all kind of crazy spiritual stuff going on that wasn't biblical and calling Christ accursed in different languages. And, you know, and, and so finally, and in Paul's effort to correct them, they got rebellious. They got their backs up. They really got stiff-necked about it all. 
it got to the point where Paul comes to this, this place and he says, look, I've been writing to you, I've been talking to you, and I'm not seeing any change. And I want you to examine yourself. Because I'm starting to wonder if you've really been born again, some of you, and you need to check it out. You need to ask the question. Do you not understand that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have been mistaken, unless you fail the test? You are reprobate, as the King James Bible would say. When I examine the context of this and the whole Corinthian issue, several things become apparent to me, and I, I want to give these balancing comments because... Sometimes people get hung up on this. One of the reasons I've had a hard time, this has been on my mind for a while, to bring a series like this. And one of the difficulties I have with it is, when you come down to giving illustrations and examples, what do you use? It's, it's kind of hard to pin down. You know? It's behavior is not always great among believers. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not believers. And one of the things that stands out to me is it is possible to be pretty carnal and still be saved. That's one of the amazing things. You can, you can be pretty ugly as a Christian. Christians are not perfect. And there are times when we look particularly ugly we hope no one's watching. You know, it's just not nice. But, on the other hand, what I find is that a genuine new birth should make a difference in one's behavior and attitude. There should be something going on that is obviously different. A before and after. Before I was a Christian, I did da-da-da-da-da, and now I have no interest in that. God has changed my appetites. And thirdly, and this is what Paul was getting at, if behavior is consistently inconsistent with the new birth, the premise of salvation needs to be examined. If your behavior is consistently inconsistent, there's no difference. And that's part of the problem that we're facing in the church today, in our present culture in the United States, is that believers, professing believers, do not look any different from their unbelieving counterparts. You can't tell any difference. And this is what the Barna research overwhelmingly supports, is that those who profess to be Christians, who are regular church attenders, do not act any different, statistically, than the culture at large without Christ. And Paul says, there's a problem. There's a problem. And we need to examine our lives to see 
So, when we look at the verse, test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate? The first thing that is obvious, and I'm just going to pass over this quickly, but the first thing that is obvious is, is that we are encouraged in Scripture to examine ourselves. I'm not leading you down some primrose path this morning. <laughs> I'm not taking you off on, on a, a, an un, a non-Christian. We are encouraged in Scripture to examine ourselves. Now, there, there should come a point where we have some settled conviction about where we are. But having done that, we are still encouraged periodically throughout our lifetime to take our spiritual pulse and find out if we are active followers under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if we are listening to him and following him. Because those who love him are following in his steps. And here is the challenge. Test yourselves. Secondly, when I read this test, if ever there was a doubt that Christianity is not a religion, a philosophy, or a creed, this verse should be the proof positive. No other major religion claims to have its founder raised from the dead and personally, presently living in your body. Another person cohabiting your body with you. Only Christianity. Well, that's not entirely a true statement. There are some really weird occults. Uh, and they're the opposite spectrum. But no major religion makes this claim that the founder who has died came out of the grave and now inhabits the lives and bodies of the followers. This is the amazing thing about the gospel, that our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God comes to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. If you examine the Scriptures, you find that the Trinity is actually dwelling in us, that we have Him alive in our hearts. There's a person living inside of us that is not ourselves who is, in fact, the creator God of the universe. Paul says this is an important test. Do you know this morning, do you know that there is a person living there with you in your temple? Do you have an awareness of his presence? Do you have a sense of fellowship with God? You know that old song, I know that he is living, he lives within my heart. Do you know that? Do, do you have conversations with him? 
I, I always get a few strange looks when I say this, but I tell you the truth, I talk to God all day long. Not up there, out there, right here. I talk to God all day long. I see something amazing that he has done, and I say, wow, God, that is really beautiful. Man, that is good stuff. You know, I'm looking forward to spring. I, I just really, I'm, I'm tired of winter this year. It's a little kind of a different winter for me. And uh, I'm looking forward to spring. I'm looking forward to the flowers and the grass turning green and all kinds of things happening. And I'm looking forward to getting out there and enjoying it. And someone brought a, a lily by the house the other day and it started blooming out, you know. And I had to not only enjoy the beauty of the lily, but I also had to go get some wax paper and a little wooden stick and knock some of the pollen off and take it down and look at it under the microscope and just say, wow, God. I mean, from the, from the macro to the micro, I mean, you just really do good stuff. It's just amazing. Fascinating. And I have these conversations with him. And there are times when he talks to me in terms of making suggestions or giving insight or wisdom or stopping me from doing or saying something foolish. I'm aware that I am living with a person who is in fact Almighty God and that he is in me. Paul says, check it, check it out. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. And the third implication of this passage, and you go back to the fifth chapter of this second letter, where Paul says things like, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come and you begin to listen to his explanation in that chapter being reconciled to God and being ambassadors with Christ, and, and you discover that the presence of God in our lives makes a difference. He exerts an influence to put to death the old carnal, sinful ways and behaviors and attitudes and to produce in us the quality and character of his own life. Paul put it this way to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ and nevertheless I live. But <laughs> it's not me that's living. It's Christ. He is the one living in me. And the life that I'm now living in this body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up on my behalf. When you see me, you're seeing Jesus come through. His life, his influence, his character. And so here's the principle. If any person is in Christ, that one is a new creation. Old ways and desires have passed away. Look, look! A whole new lifestyle has come into being. Paul's worried about them because he doesn't see that new lifestyle. 
fact, they're not acting a whole lot different from the other people in Corinth who are pretty raunchy. And he says, you need to check yourself out and see where you stand. We're on a journey. That's test number one. We're going to look at a few more. And I hope that you will prayerfully walk that journey with me. That if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life, that you will find joy and comfort and assurance. That if you don't, that you will find Him. And if you're already irritated with me, you really need to pay attention in the weeks to come. Because you're probably already in trouble. Those who love the Lord love the gospel. And they love the word. Father, thank you for your love for us. And enable us to have the courage to take a look. And by the grace of God to pass the test. And I pray, Father, if there's any that need to come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, you love them. You brought them here to hear this. Make yourself known. And may that real transformational work of new birth take place through repentance and faith toward the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.